welcome to another episode of Soda. Soda! I am Sarah Kensler. I am Jason McKenzie. And I introduced myself first this time because we like to shake it up here on Soda. Many things are shaken. Minds, perspectives on the world, uh, art. Those three things specifically. Yes. Like those, there's, it's not many. It's probably Constitutions. Those Constitutions. So, what do we start with first? We start with... Well, the news. <laughs> we start with the news first. What, like, are we, what are we on, like episode 40-ish something, probably? Listen, listen. Quit with your teasing of me. No, don't, don't ever quit. We're going to start with the news. You found something online. Yeah, so this news topic has to do with the HE Triennial and that artists have asked for their work to be taken off display after a closing of a certain part of the triennial, which they are alleging is censorship. And this is particularly interesting to me because the HE Triennial is held in Nagoya, Japan, and that is where I did my exhibition on mental illness, and, you know, that came with uh, censorship concerns, like it went, it went off very well and was well received, but you know, uh, I had to take that into consideration. Sure. Um, another thing that is interesting, uh, is that one of the artists who asked for their art to be taken off display is Pia Camille, who was a part of Desert X this past year. So oh. this is just, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of, I'm just making this about me. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's kind of cool, though, that uh, that you and I have been in the art world long enough where these types of things are actually connecting back to one of us. And, and the other, by proxy, well, you went to Pia's piece. I did, yeah. I did I did go to see Pia's, Pia's work, yeah. We did do that together. It was the big uh, rebarb rainbow. Yep, correct. Mm-hmm. Very true. Uh, and so, let us dive into the story, shall we? Yeah, so so what's, what is the Aichi Triennial? Uh, I guess Aichi Triennale, but I just... Aichi like, Triennale. Yeah, but I just say Triennial. Okay. Because it's American, not the Venice. Right. Because we're American. We say biennial instead of biennale and triennial instead of triennale. But yeah, I guess Aichi Triennale is the, if you were going to say it properly with respect... Uh, so please excuse me for my previous times of saying triennial and all of the subsequent times after this that I will subsequent. Talk about. You just said subsequent, and I just I I was gonna let it go and I couldn't <laughs> let it go. I love that you said subsequent, and now I want to pronounce it subsequent for the rest of my days. But for this purpose, it should be subsequent. All right, I'm just gonna leave that in there so that everybody gets to know your personality a little more. All right. <laughs> oh. oh, but I I love you and your personality. Okay. This is besides the point. Yes. So, uh, the news is what we're talking about here. So, what went down is that uh, when the triennial opened in uh, on August 1st of this year, um, it had a mini-show uh, that was a part of it that was titled After Freedom of Expression. And that show dealt with the censorship of artworks in Japan, right? Yes. So um, that section had work by uh, a couple of Korean artists, and I'm so sorry if I say these names wrong, Kim Sao-kyung and Kim Eun-sung, uh, that dealt 
directly with Japan's brutal history of, um, and I'm sorry if I'm saying this wrong, but Ianfu, and which means comfort women, and they were taken from around Asia and specifically Korea and forced into sexual slavery during the Second World War. And this history wasn't actually officially acknowledged by Japan until 2015, which is pretty recent. So this is all pretty fresh. Pretty fresh. Also, you know, something that they didn't want, you know, like the country didn't uh, admit to or acknowledge. It doesn't, like, put Japan in the best of lights. Right. And these are Korean artists, so they, in exhibiting in Japan, so they're like, yeah. oh, we want to take this, you know, opportunity to highlight this history. You know, it makes sense yeah. contextually. And mm-hmm. So uh, it was only on display for three days <laughs> after the opening, and uh, the director, along with the governor, closed that section. The director of the uh, Yes, of the triennial, along with the, the governor of the prefecture. Oh. Instead of, like, states, they say prefecture. Okay. And AHE is a prefecture. Fun fact. Gotcha. So AHE is the prefecture, and, like, Nagoya is the city within there. Gotcha. Just like Minnesota is a state... And St. Paul is the capital within, and like the city with, yeah, you get it. Uh, and so on August 6th, there was an open letter that was posted on Facebook, and 72 of, there were over 90 artists participating in the Atri, uh, Triennial, and they, the, the 72 uh, that were participating in this letter, uh, basically said that they don't support what the triennial is doing um, and that this exhibition should go back on display. And then a week after that, nine of the artists actually asked for their art to be taken down uh, out of the triennial. And this is also kind of thematically fun or thematically relevant because our last news cycle or our last news segment on our previous episode talked about Artists asking for their work to be taken out of the Whitney Biennial. So mm-hmm. so this seems to be like kind of a card that artists can play if they've been invited to participate in a group show, like a biennial or a triennial. Mm-hmm. If they want to protest something, they just yank their work. These contexts are very different because the Whitney Biennial, uh, the artists were protesting against a board member. Here, these artists are in like protesting for the inclusion of these other artists' work. So they're they're saying, take my work down because I don't approve of you um, not granting access to the, these other per- people's works. So if their work can be seen, I don't want my work to be seen mm-hmm. unless everybody's work can be seen. So as someone who's worked uh, with a biennial, Jason, uh, two. As somebody who's worked with two biennials, was that Jason, was that pretentious? I'm sorry. No, it. Was, <laughs> I actually feel kind of bad because I I never remember Germany, like just that it exists as a country. That you that you went there and did stuff for a biennial in Germany. Oh, well, it was fine. Germany, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was Germany. I just keep forgetting. I Desert X is what sticks out in my mind. I mean, yes, I was there longer, so I understand. Thanks. More recent. I'm so glad. You actually went to that one. I went to that one. We were there together. We did, yeah. I get it. We did the thing. I get it. Okay, great. So, I have a question for you. Give it to me. Let's say that um, one of the artists was protesting a decision that Desert X had made. And in protest, that artist came to 
you, the royal you for yes. Desert X, and said, I disagree with this decision that you have made. In protest, give me my work back. What does that entail as far as do you try to argue with the artist to keep their work there? Uh, how do you un- deinstall pieces that are installed literally into the ground? Like, what's what's the process that you go through? Is there is there an existing process? There isn't really a process. It's, I mean, you know, you could think of the same thing, like, the walker had to deal with with scaffold. Like, okay, what do we do now? You know, this this can happen in museums and galleries, like, anywhere. Just biennials, you know, are responding to uh, the most contemporary and hot-button topics of that day. Mm-hmm. Um or, you know, special circumstances that are going on, such as that, you know, uh, unique combination of, of history and place that the Korean artists exhibiting in Japan were taking advantage of. So there isn't, like, a, a guidebook that every art thing has when this happens. I think everybody usually defaults to what the artist wants to do because it is their work. Uh, however, obviously, it starts with conversation. So if an artist is calling for the takedown of their work, uh, so to have a particular artist, you know, a piece, you have done a lot of fundraising, you have worked with this artist, their studio, their galleries for months, if not years, You know, you have put a lot of money into the transportation of the artwork, hiring the crew to put it in, paying for the materials, the production materials, you know, um, paying for the artist to come for site visits and to be there for the installation. And so you have probably put thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars, and sometimes, depending on the piece and the artist, probably... Hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps? Many, so many dollars. Many dollars. uh, A few dollars that you have, and and time. Yes, and and, time. And work that, Mm -hmm. uh, and then also, you know, securing its place. Like if it's out in the public, there's permitting, there's other people you have to go through, you know, and then also what it's displayed along with, the conversation, how all the pieces are supposed to go together. You know, a lot of time, planning, effort, money has all gone into this, right? And so to deinstall it, you would take time, effort, planning, and money, uh, which, yeah, it was, you know, going to get deinstalled anyway, but it might be easier to deinstall and more cost-efficient to deinstall everything at once rather than piecemeal. And then also, you know, it wasn't up for the full amount of time, and usually biennials are up for, like, three months-ish so, you know, just like you were expecting, like, that all the time and energy that you put into this installation would, you know, you would feel that it, it was worth it over the three months. But if it's, you know, you have to take it down after a week and then you have a big gap because you've already announced the list and the, the, like, of artists and artworks. You can't just, like, throw something in there. Or I guess mm-hmm. you could, but then you have to, like, announce it. Anyways, I'm spiraling. But there's, like, a lot of – it's a there's a lot of things that go into this. There's, you know, it's a – intricate puzzles. So especially if a lot of artists are calling for the takedown of their work, these problems are compounded by the amount of people. Mm -hmm. And you said that there's over 90 artists, (laughs) but about 70 of them have signed this letter. Yes. um, In protest of the censorship, really, 
the censorship of the censorship exhibition. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry, it's it's not funny, but it kind of it kind of is. It's, like, there's irony there. Was there was there no one around the director who was like, um, you know? I'm sure they did not need to. I'm sure the director got that. Oof. So okay, so this happens. So in the case of the Whitney, um, the artists asked for their work to be removed. And I, I guess I was assuming, but I don't know, before the work was removed, Candor's was gone. That's what we're, they were specifically protesting. Yes. And so perhaps... But Can- Candor's stepped down. That's right. Candor's rather was than not, the Whitney saying, we are We're getting him. rid of you, yes. yes. Candor's stepped down publicly. Yes. So in this case, it would have to be that the exhibition be reopened because it doesn't say anything about the exhibition being deinstalled. No, it just says closed. Yeah. So in theory, they could just open it back up again. Indeed. If they were pressured enough. Well, this will be very interesting to follow. Right. And of course, you know, if you were to say, like the director were to say, no, we're leaving your artwork up. That's like, you can't do that because that's, you know, like in the art world, like the artist's particular vision is what is, you know, that's the whole thing, the whole thing for their installation. And if you were like, no, then people would be like, whoa, that is, that is a foul. Mm -hmm. So, right. I'm sure that there are conversations going on and they will, will still be had. It just opened. So let's see. uh, Yeah. See what's going on. Let's see what's going on. We'll we'll keep in touch with this particular issue. Indeed. Yes. Wonderful. Great. Excellent. Amazing. So, Sarah, I know that you missed me very dearly when I was away this past week because I was in San Francisco. I did miss you very dearly. I was also super jealous that you were in San Francisco. Oh, well, what I'm about to tell you... Next is probably going to make you more jealous. Oh my goodness, I can't take any more. <laughs> One moment, please, while I lie upon my fainting couch. I'm getting further away because I'm lying <laughs> she on the is fainting couch. Swooning on our fainting couch that we have next to our podcast uh, recording station for such purposes. Yep. Uh, tell me. I went to the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, also known as the SF MoMA. I've heard of this place. And I went to the Andy Warhol exhibition. Oh, my goodness. I've heard of that person before. Indeed. And you know, Andy Warhol is one of those figures in art history where even if you have never stepped into a museum in your life or studied art or have no interest in art whatsoever, I would say most people can recognize his work. But just in case it's not clicking, Andy Warhol is the guy that does the paintings with the repeating Campbell cans. Or Marilyn Monroe. Yes. With the different colors. Screen printing, mostly, actually. Ah, uh, yes. Andy Warhol is one of the most famous figures in art history um, from modern until today, but I would just say with all of the artists that we have in our art historical repertoire, one of the most famous. Certainly one of the most recognizable. Indeed. Indeed. And... This exhibition was obviously very well done. Um, It was curatorially excellent. 
Uh, it encompassed a lot of his life and, you know, from early to end of his career, uh, you know, his different, like, periods, you know, we've got, like, a lot of the portraiture, we've got a lot of the celebrity stuff, we've got, you know, obviously the Campbell cans, the Brillo boxes, we've got, you know, uh, the flower posters, the cows... <laughs> I just like <laughs> the celebrities, the flower posters, the cows. Well, you know which cows I'm talking I, about. I do, yes. Um, actually, what I'd like to know from you is you're uh, you're describing what it's like to go through this exhibition. I know that you have thoughts on what was both good and not so good, right? About this exhibition, absolutely. What was good? about this exhibition? I have a never-ending list of what was good in this exhibition. Um, I mentioned a few of them. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the exhibition was one of the rooms kind of around his mid-career area. You stepped in and the cow wallpaper was floor to ceiling and then mounted on the cow wallpaper were his flower prints. And then also there was a display uh, with ephemera from his collaboration with the Velvet Underground and Nico, and then there was also a video playing of his, uh, you know, some, like, writing of his that came up kind of Star Wars style, and also some some video work, and, uh, yeah, set to the tune of Velvet Underground songs. I believe it was Heroin, name of the song, by the Velvet Underground. And that was very pleasing to me because I, I like this maximalism approach to curating. So that was that was fun for me. What do you mean a maximal like everything all at once? Yes. Like an like a sensory overload in one room. Not a sensory overload, but just like your because the wallpaper is the art as well as the frame stuff is the art as well as what you're hearing is the art. Ah. It's just kind of like your attention doesn't drop. From, like, looking at a painting, and then there's, like, white wall space, and then you walk over the next one, you stand in front of it, and then you walk, you know, along white space, and you stand in front of another one. What I, the only thing I was missing is I wanted them to coat the floor with, like, vinyl or something so that it was, like, sticky. You know, you got that, like, when you were walking, like, I just felt like I needed to feel something under my feet. You should write them a letter. But anyway. Okay. Yes. Uh, that's just, <laughs> excuse me, I just go off on these curatorial fantasies sometimes. <laughs> um, also, like, the one surprise that did come for me is I didn't know that he collaborated with Basquiat. And at the end, there were these two gorgeous Andy Warhol and Basquiat paintings that were just a wonderful blend of the two of their styles. And, and that was very delightful. I was delighted. Basquiat, a uh, young artist, rose to prominence in the 80s. Young black artist. Yes. Rose to prominence in the 80s. I believe he's a member of the Forever 27 Club. Yes. I think he dated Madonna. He did? I'm pretty sure. I thought he was gay. <laughs> that doesn't mean he can't date Madonna. Well, I mean, that's, no, that's, that's very right, let's true. Let's look it up. All right. Basquiat and Madonna. Oh, it comes oh, up already. Oh. They fell in love and were together for some time, but this romance did not last. Oh, clearly. The yeah. time when John michael Basquiat and Madonna dated. Was there another question you wanted to ask me, or should I just... Oh, yeah, no, so you should, you should continue. I just wanted to know what the good was before we got to the not-so-good. Well, to be quite honest, it wasn't necessarily that there was a not-so-good. Okay. This was a very well-done show. Mm-hmm. Shout-out to my friend Pearl, who helped install it. Woo, Pearl! 
Woo Pearl. We were we worked at the Whitney together when I was in New York. Fun fact. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, so funny. Cool. Anyways. Uh, right. So it's not that there were drawbacks to the exhibition. This was a very enjoyable, well-done exhibition. I was just going to pose some questions to you because I was, I mean, besides the learning about the Basquiat uh, collaboration, Mm -hmm. for those of us who have studied art, or maybe if we haven't studied, are just interested in art, or are around art, visit museums, da-da-da, or just pop cultures of the 60s, are fans of the Velvet Underground, whatever. Whatever. It's hard to, to deliver a new perspective on Andy Warhol, Especially when it's a solo retrospective and it's in a highly tourist institution in a city like San Francisco and the SF MoMA, right? Um, It, like, wasn't necessarily, and this doesn't need to be the case, but it wasn't necessarily, you know, like, intellectually challenging Mm-hmm. Or stimulating, mm-hmm. you know, there were rooms where, it, where it's like, oh, these portraits were when he was highlighting uh, queer culture in New York City and, you know, sourcing um, trans people and drag queens as his subjects. And, you know, Andy Warhol was gay. Andy Warhol was gay. Right. And so, you know, it's that's just kind of like a really known fact about him. And it's like very, you know, just like a part of his practice to like use these subjects and that he worked with celebrities and that he was, you know, he's one of those artists where like he's painting Campbell's cans. Is it art? You know, that du- that Duchampian, yeah, conversation. So like maybe somebody who is just like, oh, hey, I'm a visitor to San Francisco. I work in super not art. Super not art. But I know who Andy Warhol is, and I would like to go to this museum and see this show. I'm sure that, you know, that experience of being like, whoa, he, look at this, he did uh, portraits of Elvis. That's so cool. And, oh, did you know that he had this factory? And did you know he hung out with all these celebrities at the time? Oh, did you know that his hair, he was shockingly white and he's from Slovakia? Like, you know, I'm sure, like, that would be super cool. But for, like, those of us, like, you don't even have to, like, be an art history major to just, like, have all of these facts about Andy Warhol just, you know, all over your brain. Um, So it was a very great aesthetic show. You know, I saw things, pieces that I wasn't familiar with. Um... But something that I wanted to pose to you was, what do you think some of the values are for having a show like this? Like, why put on a large retrospective of such a famous figure that art people, non-art people alike know? And, and, And maybe furthermore, how do you put on a show for both the non-art person and the art person at the same time, feel free to take those questions separately. Parse parse as I will. Well, when you put on, when you, when it, when, when you personally, when I, the last time that I put on an Andy Warhol Um, exhibition, uh, tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars exhibition. That's just a normal thing that I do Mm -hmm. every Tuesday. In a major museum. In a major museum. We're very important people. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Uh, So 
so when when an institution decides to put on an exhibition on a very well-known artist, so like Andy Warhol, Matisse, Picasso, unfortunately these are all men. Um, anyway, when you put on an exhibition of work that's very recognizable, you're actually giving yourself a unique opportunity to um, to provide some more education to the public about the artist and their work that I think otherwise they wouldn't be so receptive to. There are many right ways to present art in an educational format to people who don't spend their all their time learning about art. There is also a wrong way, and that wrong way is typically you are a dum-dum who's not familiar with art. These are colors. They are put on a canvas. This is now art. Like There's, there's a way in which institutions can very easily slip into talking down to their audience. Um, and that does not uh, build any any connections between the audience and the institution. It doesn't uh, build any connection between the audience and the art. And it makes the audience uh, devalue the art itself because it becomes a class thing. It becomes a hierarchy thing. So uh, you start with Andy Warhol's pieces. Thing, pieces that, that people can recognize right away. Soup cans, I think, probably. Or soup cans and Marilyn Monroe. You start with those. You're like, hey, this is Andy Warhol. You might have heard of him. He's this dude. He looks like this. He painted these things. I mean, that's that's important to establish basic knowledge. Yeah. They right? went, like I said, they went sequentially through his career. He started as a commercial illustrator, illustrating yeah. for Campbell's. Campbell's. And that's fine. But then you dive into something super new and cool. Um, from from my perspective, since the whole point of me, one of one of my main goals in interviewing artists is to uh, bring them closer to everybody else, so that there's not such a a social interpreted divide between art, the people who make the art, and the general public. Mm-hmm. Is to humanize these giants of art. Um, so you know, still talk about his work because an artist is re- is a reflection of their work and vice versa. So you can still talk about his work, but talk about, geez, I don't know, like his home life or talk about, talk about his interactions with other artists. That's one of the most fascinating things that I keep coming across in my study of art history from like, I don't know, 18th century through current is that there were these, all these little groups of artists. Yeah, just these camps in these they various like, cities. And they would, like, get together and drink with each other. And just, like, play cards. And yeah. play cards and be like, you're so great. And they'd be like, no, 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 you're so great. So it was, like, their own little subreddit of <laughs> congratulations. It was an artistic subreddit of congratulations well, before actually, the internet was even a thing. Wasn't it, um, oh, man, was it Cezanne and Picasso that wrote letters with each other being, like, I just did this. Or no, Cezanne and Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. And Van Gogh would be like, I painted this. And then Cezanne would be like, that's shitty. I, <laughs> here is my painting and I did it better. And they would like. And see, like, that's so, that's so funny and weird. And like that, that type of information sticks with you. Right. Because it's, it's just funny. It's colloquial. It, it humanizes the artist and, and it brings the general public closer to the art. And in the end, I mean, I suppose rather selfishly, but also for a very good, you know, societal and cultural purpose, we need to make sure that art is valued and people can't value it if they feel like it's out of their league. Well, so I would actually like, I don't know, push back on you a little bit here in saying that um, 
Mm, I mean, this this was just we know so much personal stuff about Andy Warhol. Like there there were videos of like just people and him hanging out in his studio. You know, so we have like there is documentation of who he was hanging out with and what they were doing on a daily basis. Like these were just videos where like the camera was on and like they were just doing whatever they were doing. You know, it's it, it wasn't like <laughs> So we so we know so much about him that he's been pretty much beat to death and there's like no possible angle that we can approach him to make him new and fresh and cool. That is kind of a brutal way of saying what I'm saying, yes. Well, because I just got an idea for an exhibition. It's called Beat to Death. <laughs> and uh, it includes Andy Warhol, uh, Matisse, Cezanne, Picasso, who else? Michelangelo, Da Vinci. Just all They've been all eras, beat to death. Yep. Styles. Yep. Let's throw, let's just, let's throw David in there. Totally. Let's see, how, how far back can we go? Oh, let's go. That's the case in Lasco. <laughs> France. Lasco case. The, the, the Venus of Willemdorf. <laughs> <laughs> and the Venus de Milo. Yes. The Elgin Marbles. All of the Venus. Beat to Venai. Okay. The, <laughs> I don't know that that's an actual. I, but you are very smart, and, and we should probably make it a word. <laughs> that sounds so dirty. It does sound. Well, they're naked women. Like, I don't the know. The Venai. Hey. What? The naked female body is natural. It is not dirty. The word Venai kind of is, though. It makes them dirty. Those are pristine works of art that the human culture of the entire Earth values. The Venuses. To be fair. The Venai. I'm not laughing. <laughs> to be fair, they are only valued, specifically the Venus de Milo, because we are told we must value it. Uh, and they were made by male artists and yep. the male patriarchy controls. And what, the male gaze. What we say yep. is... I will say, though, that, you know, just kind of having artists and art history friends and whatnot who are, like, and a lot of them are queer people, it is really, and you know, like, the female gaze, the male gaze, the audience gaze, whatever, it, it do, I am, like, consistently wondering when I'm in those groups if we're talking about the gays, G-A-Z-E, or the gays, G-A-Y-S. <laughs> I don't know which gays we're talking about a lot of that's, the time. That's an excellent book. That the gays, gays. The gays, gays. The gays of the gays. Ah! Copyright, we said it first. TM, TM. Wow, that's very loud. <laughs> that's real loud. We're we just turn that maxed down. out. We just maxed out our volume. <laughs> oh my gosh. But I mean, the, the yes. other thing too, since you mentioned the, the Venus of Willendorf, is actually... Um, Mia, a couple of years ago, decided not to call their prehistoric Venus, quote-unquote, figurine a Venus anymore because it subjected the piece to a Western straight male line of nice. thinking. And so um, and it also was, it made the Western straight male assumption that this figure was a, like a fertility breeding. object. Breeding. Women. Hips, boobs. It's like a whole, it's a whole thing. So... Mia took it upon themselves, uh, actually Kaywin Feldman took it upon herself to, uh, to change the, the nomenclature of this particular piece from Venus to female figure. Sweet slide-in of the word nomenclature. I've, like, had it on my list of things to do mentally to you use have that word. Not. I'm not even joking. Do you have a list of things to do mentally that includes sliding weird, like, multiple-syllable words into It's not necessarily multiple-syllable words, but I do have a mental list of words that I should use more often. 
And nomenclature is one of them. Nomenclature is literally one of them, but I just haven't found the right context yet, and so I wanted to compliment you. I would gift this to you. I don't. I don't feel like I deserve it. I'll. I'll get there someday. Okay. I will. All right. I, all right. All right. So, um, I think that we have thoroughly departed. digressed. Should institutions put on exhibitions of artists who have been so overdone in the art world? There are advantages that we haven't talked about, such as museums. Uh, most of which are nonprofits, do need money to function. And so if you have a heavy hitter like uh. Warhol, you know, you are benefiting the museum through high attendance and support for the museum in that way. Probably getting a whole new member base in the process. A whole new member base. Um, also, you are bringing in people who have never been to a museum before, don't go to art museums, wouldn't normally do this thing because, you know, maybe they've lived in San Francisco their whole life. And they're like, oh, hey, this is interesting. They see that ad for the Warhol show and they're like, oh, I know who this is. I feel like this is approachable for me. I want to go. And then they're introduced to the museum. They've made that first like, you know, step in there and then they're like, oh, this isn't so scary or I actually like this. Maybe I'll come back sometime. You know, you're, you're reaching out to more audiences or like tourists of all the places you can go in a city like San Francisco where there's so many amazing things to do. You're bringing in people from other communities and introducing them to your institution. And, you know, for people who know Andy Warhol's work, but they've never, they didn't know that he was a commercial illustrator and they didn't know that, you know, um, he worked with celebrities. I don't know. You know, they didn't know about his promotion of, uh, the queer culture in New York city. They didn't know about the factory. Like that was probably so cool. And then they're going home like, Hey, you know that Andy Warhol guy? Did you know that he like started production like Ford manufacturing but for like art it's insane you know and then so you know those are obviously some of the benefits that we're not talking about also for like art education and the art history 101s yeah like I went to like the Walker and Mia every week (laughs) during my undergrad you know like I had a class where we actually just met at Mia and we had class in the gallery same yeah I've had that class too so you know, that is probably a great educational source. Or mm-hmm. for high school classes, you know, younger, blah, blah, blah. That's a very good point. I feel like we both made really good points. Wow, you're so smart. Do you you're... have a master's degree? <laughs> as, a matter, as a matter of fact. Um, I do. It's not in art. It's in sarcasm. Oh. Um, I am mine's, the master of sarcasm, everybody. Mine's an obvious question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we have talked at length about We've this. Really, I feel like just... we have so much more to say. But for the, you know, the sake of the listener, also if if you all have anything that you would like to say about pros and cons about big shows like this, about famous people and stuff, like tell us about it. We we slide into our DMs. And something slide into the DMs. Slide into the DMs. We have talked about this on the podcast before. Why can't you just send us a DM instead of sliding? I don't understand. I don't understand. I'm being an old folky. I don't understand why this where the sliding action comes in. Particularly, 
Um, I don't know. Let's look it up on the internet, and though it seems very sinister. Okay. All right. Well, um, anyway, you should DM us. Yeah, or email. Uh, bat symbol tele telepathic messages. Telepathic we messages are, are now being accepted. We've just upgraded. But we are open to it all, and we look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> oh, 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 oh! Ah, you know what's next? What? It's an interview. No. Yeah. With who? With Reagan Golden. Oh. I know that person. You do? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Wait, she's an artist? She is an artist, yes. Cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I thought so. Yeah. No, Reagan does this really cool process with some really cool effect. And you know what? I'm just not going to say anything about it because we should just play the interview like right now. Hello, everyone. I am here with Reagan Golden. Reagan is an artist, writer, mother, critic, plant enthusiast, but not necessarily in that order. Exactly. <laughs> Regan, thank you so much for inviting me into your space and letting me see all your cool work. And we're going to be really kind of hot today, I guess. Yes. Just a little bit. <laughs> it's like 90 degrees outside. It is. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming to my hot studio. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. So why don't you talk about your background, whatever that means to you? Sure. Well, I'll just provide a background that relates to my work, which is primarily about plants and urban forests. I grew up in St. Paul, and the area that I grew up in is um, right near the intersection of 94 and 280. And right at that area, there is a section of plants and trees and ponds um, that are left over from this wetland that used to be there actually stretched from like the state fairgrounds all the way through our neighborhood through the rail yard down to the ponds which are on the other side of Treaty and into the Mississippi River and so the remnants of this forest are there it's a place where I used to play as a kid we would escape to there to build forts and things like that in the woods and ever since I think I've loved these kind of like peripheral forests. I love seeing them when I go around the city and I I love bringing attention to them, hopefully through my work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by bringing, like bringing attention to them um, Mm. through activism, like visually? What do you mean by that? I think visually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that these spaces are almost like invisible. I think of them as like scrims, like you see in a play. They hide something else usually from view. In our neighborhood, they hide the rail yard, a cement plant, 280 from from view. Um, And so I, they kind of are almost invisible in the urban landscape. And so I think through my work of photographing the plants that are there, photographing these landscapes as they change throughout the seasons is really important to hopefully having other people see them and make them visible, basically. <laughs> Just to, like, increase awareness of, of the landscape around us in general? Yeah, and I think, too, thinking about how fragile urban green spaces are. None of these spaces are protected. They aren't owned by anybody. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Department of Transit or something, transfer, you know, like, that might be it. But, you know, they, they don't have a clear owner. They're not big enough to build anything on. They're yeah. swampy, weedy. They're full of, like, invasive invasive so-called plants 
Um, so they're like not at all desirable, um, but they perform a really important function, which is like this kind of green background that hides something else. And they also filter out pollution from the air, from the water um, that runs eventually into the drains eventually into the Mississippi River. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been interested in these types of spaces ever since you were a kid? Uh, yeah. Because I think look, growing up in the middle of the city, it was like our free space. It was like we could be there and be free and like no one was watching us. Just like this little magical space that didn't match anything else in your environment. It didn't match anything else in the environment. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think that I love living in the city, but I also think that that environment can become really daunting sometimes without green spaces as a space for like a little bit of relief or a little bit of play or like something outside of the ordinary um, visually. So I think those spaces are really important for those reasons. And so these plants that I collect and photograph through my work um, are from literally from like my backyard or across the street. I think though that it's helped me a lot to think about time And I think that my work is as much about plants as it is about time. With an infant and a toddler, I was losing track of time Mm -hmm. and losing track of, I think, like my life as an artist. And photographing the plants like every day, collecting plants, looking at what was there, looking at what had changed, it helped me see that time was passing. Which sounds really sad. <laughs> but, no, that's beautiful. But, but it was literally like I had, I could not, I mean, day flowed into night, flowed into day with two small children and there was no break. And so this was like my one way of being like, okay, that flower is passing. It is now the end of the summer, like to see time passing. It's like these plants anchored you to this world. <laughs> totally. Otherwise, I was like slipping off into like Mama La La Land, I guess. Which yeah. is not a bad place to be. I hear that that happens. It, it happens. And I think it's not, it wasn't a bad place to be. It was just that I needed something to anchor me in the world and, into, and to re-anchor myself in what had been my home many, many years mm-hmm. previous. But the, I mean, the way that you're talking about this, this is making me realize that your work is inherently way more personal than I previously mm. expected. Yes. Because you're you're starting with materials from a place that is very personal to you, right. with materials that you you had to leave the state to recognize how to almost how to look at them. Yeah. Totally. Like, I want to say properly, but that's not really what I mean. Look at them um, and appreciate them for what they are. Right. Because I I agree. Like, I grew up on the East Coast, and Mm -hmm. coming from there out to here, it it really is... hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's no grand nothing, landscapes. Nothing to anchor the view. <laughs> there's nothing to anchor the view. Don't get us wrong. <laughs> we love it. Minnesotans, we love yes. Minnesota. But the prairie, it's all about the details. Yeah. And I think um, that bringing those to light is something that I try to do through my work, especially in the shift in scale. I mean, one of the things that I really like about working with photography and working specifically with the scanner is that it allows me to scan something at a very high resolution and then print it massive. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing this plant, you know, that's like 
tiny. It's like half an inch by three quarters of an inch. But you're seeing it now in the print, in the finished print, at like two by three feet. And I think that the shifting the, of scale is also about like changing the relationship to those plants. Mm-hmm. The plants are really, really important and we'll die without them. And so I think like that is one thing I think about in and kind of through making this work. And yeah. I think particularly with with flora and fauna of the prairie specifically, yes. there is a very distinct way that I've seen these types of plants photographed and presented. And it's right. usually, <clears throat> if I can explain, if it's a photograph, it's a photograph of like a single thistle or whatever, and the background's kind of blurry, and you can like tell that there's depth, but the focus is on that one thistle, and it's presented by like an 8 by 11 or whatever. It's not ever blown up. Right. And so you don't get the elements. I think what they're going for is maybe the beauty of the solidarity of the prayer. Right. Not solidarity, the beauty of the... Um, like the singleness. Yeah. Yeah. The single entity, the spaciousness mm-hmm. of this particular area of the U.S. Right. The vast kind of flatness of it. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think that the, the, the tools that I use in terms of, like, photography, the scanner, um, and then the way that the work, I think, references botanical illustration, I think tends to make people think that, there's, that it's very objective. And I think that that's inherent in the technology and then yes. also in our kind of like the legacy of botanical illustration. And so I think that it's important to push that a little bit by introducing some of these more personal stories of my relationship or other people's relationships to plants um, as part of the work. Uh, because I think that that kind of muddies a little bit that kind of objectivity uh, which is always something that I want to do mm-hmm. with my work. <laughs> you want it to be from life, but also personal. Yeah, mm-hmm. and to be to some present something that is direct and real, but also to make it personal mm-hmm. and make it lived, like so that it represents like the lived experience of right. that plant rather than just the picture of that plant or the illustration of that plant I really want that lived experience as part of the finished image I want to talk about the process that you've been doing using the ice so how did how did this particular project come to be I wanted to literally use the ice uh, and put my photographs inside of it freeze the photographs inside of the ice block and then let it melt on the scanner. Or and sometimes I do actually photograph them, put them on a plate, on a glass plate, and then re-photograph them from above, like a coffee stand. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and sometimes I do that more, more so with these because the weight sometimes of the ice, I'm worried, will shatter the scanner bed glass. Mm-hmm. And so I basically decided that I like, well, how could I keep this moment or keep this photograph forever? Right? It's like encase it in a block of ice in Minnesota in January um, and then see what happens. And so uh, gradually the photographs melt and the ice blocks melt and I photograph them over, you know, several months of winter as they change and they get more ice or they lose ice. <laughs> so, um, but basically the Thaw series is all of these works about winter in Minnesota. And I think, again, it gets me to be present to the passing of time because 
winter in Minnesota and the blocks of ice that I, for instance, produce like in the end of November or early December are completely different from the mushy, murky kind of blocks of ice that I produce like in March or when we get a heavy snowfall and the snow falls on top of the photographs and then melts and it puts all these holes in the ice and all this kind of stuff and it totally changes. So it's really... it's really been an interesting process and it keeps me aware of the weather, which is a weird thing, but I think it keeps me alert to time passing and winter passing and the weather changing um, this through this process. And it's connecting you even closer to the nature that we constantly pass by. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's like a reminder that that's still there, even though there's not plants, it's all this change going on within the season. But I think, too, with these, when I let the sunshine on them, there is this element of the sunshine as a destructive force. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that that's the part of the work where I'm thinking about the impact of climate change and protecting a Minnesota winter by literally wanting to freeze the image of winter in Minnesota in a block of ice. Like, as if, like that would literally, be the only that was, way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would like, be... That would be like, the that's like what we'll be left with right Mm -hmm. um and of the sun in these images is that january sunlight it's like so bright and so piercing and it's you can see that it's melting the images um on the scanner or in the studio does the word ritual ever hmm. enter into your mind when no. you're talking about this? Because no. you you <laughs> keep talking about the the process that you go through to collect these items, plus your um, your acknowledgement that these items need a particular approach, and you photograph them over a period of time. Like this is mm-hmm. all kind of sounding like a ritual to me. I think so. I think. It's, it's a way of, it's a ritual of observation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a something that reminds me to be looking at the world around me. Because I think that, I mean, my, for myself personally, with teaching, with family, um, I just often don't look. I think I stop, stop looking um, when I get really busy. And my work is a way of literally like just reminding myself that the world is still there. And that, that, and sometimes that's really comforting because I think that things can feel overwhelming sometimes with work and with family and being present to just the landscape is a way of just, you know, uh, like being like, okay, this is not such a big deal after a while because like, you know, tomorrow there'll be another snowstorm and, and then then the spring will come and like, you know, there's kind of an inevitability to the passing of the seasons, which I think in some ways is really um, reassuring. If people wanted to find you online, oh yeah, where would they go? They can go to my website, which is regangolden.com. And that's R-E-G-A-N? Yes, golden. R-E-G-A-N okay. and then golden, um, all like one word. Um, and then also I just published a new series of articles for... MinnesotaArtist.org. Um, so that series is called Seeing Plants, Vision, and Botany in Contemporary Art. And I'm really excited about it. And it features um, essays by other artists locally about their relationship to plants and interviews. Um, so that's all actually online at mnartists.org. 
Yep. Another fabulous resource for artists around yes. Midwest as well. And great writing opportunities too. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. And what else is coming up for you in the future? Any shows or anything like that? I have a show at Minnesota State University in Mankato that is called Chronoflora, the time of plants. And I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be in the end of August. Reagan, thank you again so much. For letting me interview you. This has been a wonderful experience, oh, really. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. I bought you a plant. Oh, you did? Oh. It's a mullen plant. A mullen? Oh, he's it's a soft fast. plant. He's a soft baby. So, but he's a, he won't have a bloom until next year this time. Okay. So you have to wait. Okay. That's okay. But it's a medicinal native plant um, to Minnesota and uh, it has all kinds of amazing medicinal uses. Um, in the Victorian era, they used to rub the leaves, which are kind of soft and fuzzy, on their cheeks as rouge. So, oh my word! <laughs> I know. But it has other much better uses and has been, you know, an important part of the plant ecosystem in Minnesota for a long time. And it grows all over the city. You'll see it passing down any highway. So yeah. I'm so excited. Oh, great. <laughs> I will name him Clyde. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. For joining us, Soda listeners, you can find our show notes and other information about us on our website at sodapodcast.blog. Please email us with any feedback or to alert us of any arts events coming up at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at State of the Arts Pod or search for Soda Podcast. You can find episodes of State of the Arts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. We have a Patreon. There's a donation tab on our website. Donating to the Patreon will help us cover the costs of producing the podcast. And as always, our music is provided by The Von Tramps. Should, should museums put on exhibitions of artists who have literally been beat to death? Not literally. That's a, that's a, poor, <laughs> use, that's a poor use of the word literally, and you're going to take that out. I you're going to take it out right now. I'm going to say you're taking it out again just to make sure that you take it I out. I got it. I got it. Uh, Whenever I see these spikes <laughs> definitely, in laughing, I'm like, all right, uh, this that's, has got to come we out. fucked up. I am in specific, in response to specific, this, that, bleh, strike that, please. Stricken from the record. <laughs> Redacted. Scribe. <laughs> Strike it from the court record. Redacted, redacted, redacted. On this day, redacted. Okay.